Memories that still had the power to cut and burn. Memories that had been his omnipresent companions this past year. Whispering to him in the night, mocking his tears, forcing him to relive that terrible moment over and over again. He sees the cold white room in the hospital at the United States Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases in Frederick, Maryland. He is watching Sophia, his love, his wife-to-be, writhing under the oxygen tent, gasping for breath. He stands only inches away, yet powerless to help her. His screams at the medical staff echo off the walls and return to mock him. They don't know what's wrong with her. They, too, are powerless. Suddenly, she cries out. A sound Smith still hears in his nightmares and prays never to hear again. Her spine, bent like a bow, arches to an impossible angle. Sweat pours off her, as if to rid her body of the toxin. Her face is bright with fever. For an instant, she is frozen like that. Then she collapses. Blood pours out of her nose and throat. From deep within comes the death rattle, followed by a gentle sigh, as her soul, free at last, escapes its tortured confines. Smith shivered and looked around quickly. He didn't realize that he had stopped walking. The rain continued to drum on the umbrella, but it seemed to fall in slow motion. He thought he could hear every drop as it spattered off the nylon. He wasn't sure how long he stood there, like an abandoned, forgotten statue, or what finally made him take a step. He didn't know how he came to be on the path that led to her grave, or how he found himself standing in front of it. Sophia Russell, now in the shelter of the Lord. Smith leaned forward and ran his fingertips across the smooth top of the pink and white granite headstone. I should have come more often. I know, he whispered. But I couldn't bring myself to do it. I thought that if I came here I, I would have to admit that I've lost you forever. I couldn't do that until now. The Hades Project that's what they called it, Sophia, the terror that took you away from me. You never saw the faces of the men who were involved. God spared you that. But I want you to know that they've paid for their crimes. I had my taste of revenge, my darling, and I believed that it would bring me peace. But it did not. For months I've been asking myself how I might earn that serenity. In the end, the answer was always the same. From his jacket pocket, Smith took out a small jeweler's box. Opening the lid, he stared at a six-carat marquee-cut diamond in a platinum setting that he had picked out at Van Cleef and Arpels in London. It was the wedding ring he had intended to slip on the finger of the woman who would have become his wife. Smith crouched and pushed the ring into the soft earth at the base of the headstone. I love you, Sophia. I will always love you. Your heart is still a light of my life, but it's time for me to move on. I don't know where I'll go, or how I'll get there, but I must go. Smith brought his fingertips to his lips, then touched the cold stone. May God bless you and look after you always. He picked up the umbrella and took a step back, staring at the headstone as though imprinting its image in his mind for all time. Then he heard the soft footfall behind him and turned around fast. 
The woman, holding the black umbrella, was in her mid-thirties, tall, with brilliant red hair pulled back in a ponytail. A spray of freckles dotted her nose and high cheekbones. Her eyes, green like reef waters, widened when she saw Smith. John? John Smith? Megan? Megan Olson walked up quickly, took Smith's arm and squeezed it. Is it really you? My God, it's been... A long time. Megan looked past him at Sophia's grave. I'm so sorry, John. I didn't know that anyone would be here. I didn't mean to intrude. It's all right. I did what I came to do. I guess we're both here for the same reason, she said softly. She drew him under the shelter of a massive oak and looked at him keenly. The lines and creases on his face were deeper than she remembered, and there was a host of new ones. She could only imagine the kind of year John Smith had endured. I'm sorry for your loss, John, she said. I wish I could have told you that sooner. She hesitated. I wish I'd been here when you needed someone. I tried calling, but you were away, he replied. The job... Megan nodded ruefully. I was away, she said vaguely. Sophia Russell and Megan Olson had both grown up in Santa Barbara, had gone to school there, then on to UCLA. After college, their paths had diverged. Sophia had gone to complete her Ph.D. in cell and molecular biology and had joined U.S. AMRID, the United States Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases. After receiving her master's in biochemistry, Megan had accepted a position at the National Institutes of Health, but after only a three-year tenure, she had switched to the Medical Research Division of the World Health Organization. Sophia had received postcards from all over the world and had pasted them in a scrapbook as a way to keep track of her globe-trotting friend. Now, without warning, Megan was back. NASA, Megan said, answering Smith's unspoken question. I got tired of the gypsy life, applied to the space shuttle candidate school and was accepted. Now I'm first alternate on the next space mission. Smith couldn't hide his amazement. Sophia always said she never knew what to expect from you. Congratulations. Megan smiled wanly. Thanks. I guess none of us knows what we can expect. Are you still with the Army at U.S. Amrit? I'm at loose ends, Smith replied. It wasn't the whole truth, but close enough. He changed the subject. Are you going to be in Washington for a while? Might give us a chance to catch up. Megan shook her head. I'd love to, but I have to go back to Houston tonight. But I don't want to lose touch with you, John. Are you still living out in Thermont? No, I sold the place. Too many memories. On the back of a card, he jotted down his address in Bethesda, along with a phone number that he was actually listed under. Handing her the card, he said, Don't be a stranger. I won't, Megan replied. Look after yourself, John. You too. It was good to see you, Megan. Good luck on the mission. She watched him walk out of the overhang and disappear into the drizzle. I'm at loose ends, he'd said. Megan had never thought of Smith as a man without purpose or direction. She was still wondering about his cryptic comment as she walked over to Sophia's grave, 
the rain drumming on her umbrella. Chapter 2 The Pentagon employs over 23,000 workers, military and civilian, housing them in a unique structure that covers almost 4 million square feet. Anyone looking for security, anonymity, and access to both the world's most sophisticated communications plus the power centers of Washington could not ask for a more perfect venue. The Least Facilities Division occupies a tiny portion of the offices in the Pentagon's E-Block. As its name implies, Least Facilities oversees the procurement, management, and security of buildings and land for the military, everything from storage warehouses in St. Louis to vast tracts of Nevada desert for an Air Force testing ground. Given the decidedly unglamorous nature of its work, the men and women in the division are more civilian than military in character. They arrive at the offices at nine o'clock in the morning, put in a dutiful day's work, and leave at five. World events that might keep their colleagues at their desks for days on end have no impact on them. Most of them like it that way. Nathaniel Frederick Klein liked it too, but for altogether different reasons. Klein's office was at the very end of a hall tucked between doors that were marked electrical room and maintenance, except there were no such service rooms behind those doors, and their locks could not be opened even with the most sophisticated keycard. That space was part of Klein's secret suite. There was no nameplate on Klein's door, only an internal Pentagon designation, 2E377. If asked, the few co-workers who'd actually seen him would describe a man in his early sixties, medium height, unprepossessing except for his rather long nose and wire-framed glasses. They might recall his conservative and somewhat rumpled suits, perhaps the way he would smile briefly when passed in the hall. They might have heard that Klein was sometimes called before the Joint Chiefs or a Congressional Committee, but that would be in keeping with his seniority. They might also know that he was vested with the responsibility of checking the properties the Pentagon leased or had an interest in throughout the world. That would account for the fact that one seldom saw him at all. In fact, it was sometimes difficult to say who or what Nathaniel Klein really was. At eight o'clock in the evening, Klein was still behind his desk in the modest office that was identical to all the others in the wing. He had added a few personal touches, framed prints depicting the world as imagined by sixteenth-century cartographers, an old-fashioned pedestal-mounted globe, and a large framed photograph of the Earth taken from the space shuttle. Although very few people were aware of it, Klein's affinity for things global was a direct reflection of his real mandate, to serve as the eyes and ears of the President. From this nondescript office, Klein ran a loosely knit organization known as Covert One. Conceived by the President after the horror known as the Hades Project, Covert One was designed to be the Chief Executive's early warning system and secret response option. Because Covert One worked outside the usual military intelligence bureaucracy and well away from the scrutiny of Congress, it had no formal organization or headquarters. Instead of accredited operatives, Klein recruited men and women whom he called mobile ciphers, individuals who were acknowledged experts in their field yet who, through circumstances or dispositions, found themselves outside the mainstream of society. Most, but certainly not all, had some military background, were holders of numerous citations and awards, but had chafed under structured command, and so had elected to leave their respective services. 
Others came from the civilian world, former investigators, state and federal, linguists who were fluent in a dozen languages, doctors who had traveled the world and were accustomed to the harshest conditions. The very best, like Colonel John Smith, bridged the two worlds. They also possessed one factor that disqualified so many Klein looked at. Their lives were strictly their own. They had little or no family, few encumbrances, and a professional reputation that would stand up to the closest scrutiny. These were invaluable assets for an individual sent in harm's way thousands of miles from home. Klein closed the folder on the report he had been reading, removed his glasses, and rubbed his weary eyes. He was looking forward to going home, being greeted by his cocker spaniel buck, and enjoying a finger of single malt scotch followed by whatever dinner his housekeeper had left in the oven. He was about to get up when the connecting door to the next room opened. Nathaniel? The speaker was a trim woman, a few years younger than Klein, with bright robin's eyes and graying blonde hair done in a French twist. She wore a conservative blue business suit accented by a string of pearls and a filigree gold bracelet. I thought you'd gone home, Maggie. Maggie Templeton, who'd been Klein's assistant for the ten years he had worked at the National Security Agency, arched her neatly sculptured brows. When was the last time I left before you did? Good thing I didn't, too. You'd better have a look at this. Klein followed Maggie into the next room, which was really one large computer station. Three monitors were lined up side by side, along with a host of servers and storage units, all driven by the government's most advanced software. Klein stood back and admired the dexterity and proficiency with which Maggie worked her keyboard. It was like watching a virtuoso performance by a concert pianist. Besides the president, Maggie Templeton was the only person familiar with the entire workings of Covert One. Knowing he would need a skilled and trusted right hand, Klein had insisted on Maggie's being involved from the get-go. Besides having worked for him at the NSA, she had better than twenty years' experience as a senior CIA administrator. But most important to Klein, she was family. Maggie's sister Judith had been Klein's wife, taken by cancer years ago. Maggie, too, had her share of tragedy. Her husband, a CIA covert operative, had never returned from a mission abroad. As fate would have it, Maggie and Klein were the only family each had. Finished on the keyboard, Maggie tapped on the screen with an elegantly manicured fingernail. Vector 6 The two words pulsed in the center of the screen, like a blinking traffic light at an empty intersection in a country town. Klein felt the hairs on his forearms.